a CNAS triumvirate, joins the China Talk podcast to discuss the Biden administration's 50-page executive order on, on AI. Um, we have Vivek Chili Curry, the newly minted director of technology and national security, coming over from Senator Bennett's staff, as well as Bill Drexel and Tim Fisk, who both work on Vivek's team. There is like too much in this. Why don't we all go around the horn very briefly with the one thing they're most excited about, and then we can kind of like traffic control through there. Vivek, like 20 words or less, kick us off. Sure. I mean, I think they got eight principles to start out to frame the document, and uh, the majority of them have to do with rights, you know, privacy, civil liberties, safety. And I think we're leading by example, which is really important. Go government, go rule of law. They did a thing. Some of it seems pretty good. Um, yeah, I think like most of the meat here is in the safety stuff. Um, that's probably what I'm most excited about. Outside of that, if you love guidelines and reports, you're going to love this executive order. Yeah, I'll just add, I think um, the talent dimension of it is most exciting to me if it works. Um, so both within government and in immigration, um, I think the immigration's maybe the bigger question. Yeah, and mine is... Oh my God, they just gave themselves so much work. Um, I had ChatGPT like pull down uh, the 100 things that all have deadlines attached to them, um, ranging from 30 days, like, okay, we basically have already done this, to like some go out all the way to 540 days. Um, and there's just so many reports and rule writing. And like, it's it feels like it's hard to give this sort of thing a grade because so much of um, what's contained in this executive order is actually going to be playing out over the next year or two. So with that... Let's start with talent. Let's start with let's start with the people. What was interesting about the federal government and the immigration stuff uh, packed in here? Direct hire uh, for federal government officials with AI expertise is a is potentially a big win. Um, so this allows the government or various arms of the government to bypass a lot of the red tape that would usually slow down or otherwise make hiring difficult um, in this particular area. Um, so for such a fast-moving area as AI and one that's going to be so important. Um, and given all the work they have given themselves, it's going to be really important to get people who are um, well acquainted with the subject area. Um, but hiring is always a big challenge for the government. Um, so anything, I think, that speeds that along is great. And this hopefully will speed it along. I mean, there are other factors. AI talent in general is in... Um, hot demand in the workforce as well. Uh, so they're, they have some strong competition, but at least uh, they're trying to lower the barriers for entry into government in this area. For all the Americans out there who've, who've played around in USA jobs in the past, like there are an enormous amount of sort of like different things that you gain points and lose points for. And um, you, you know, whether it's veterans preference, whether it's if you used to be a civil servant or, or what have you, like you have to write this like weird resume um, that gets filtered out by certain points. But like all of this stuff is like Congress legislated around. Right. I'm curious, Vivek, like, is there a point at which like the executive branch just deciding things are direct hiring authority? Do you know if that's like, you know, to what extent? You know, this could be something where um, a president ends up pushing too far and, and and gets pushed back from the hill for for sort of going around a lot of these rules and regulations that, like, you know, were probably set up at some point with um, uh, uh, with good intentions in mind. You know, honestly, I, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but I don't really envision a lot of hill pushback on this. This is pretty uncontroversial. I mean, if I don't think there's a lot of uh, disagreement on the hill about the need to bring in AI talent. And if you know, in terms of the list of things that the Congress will be pushing back on the administration on for this EO, I really don't see it on that particular issue. I mean, I think they also recognize that they should recognize that, you know, as much as the administration is doing uh, to work within a broken system, the real work needs to happen from Congress, you know, whether it's H-1Bs and green cards and, you know, J-1s. Uh, I mean, if they if there's a single thing that we can do beyond this EO that Congress should do, it, it's that, in my opinion. So, you know, direct hire authority is also something that the CHIPS Act got to do, um, which is why you now have these 
um, you know, articles getting written in Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal about how they were able to bring all this like, you know, top flight investing talent from Wall Street or whatever. Because like, it's one thing to talk someone into a massive pay cut, but it's another to try to talk someone into a massive pay cut and then not be able to hire them for seven months or like not even be able to get that person through the system at all. So, um, you know, a lot of computer scientists out there who could be making multiples of um, what they would, you know, in the Commerce Department writing reports about AI safety, um, uh, at least could be given the common courtesy of like, um, you know, once the boss wants to hire them, being able to get them in the door. So I, that's something that did strike out to me as well, Bill, and something I'm uh, I'm particularly excited about. Um, now, Bill, why don't you walk us through the the sort of immigration provisions that um, that were tucked into this? Sure. So I, it's all a little bit perspective, but the way I read it, it's a lot of consider doing this, review this, and maybe do that. Uh, but it's all geared around trying to make, trying to fix what is one of the biggest challenges in our AI ecosystem, which is that we get a lot of top talent to come study here, and then we struggle to retain them, uh, largely for visa challenges. Um, and so it's trying to come up with different ways to streamline the process to attract foreign talent and to retain foreign talent once they're already here through a range of means. It's just a question of um, whether after considering or reviewing uh, these measures, they'll actually be able to implement changes that stick. Yeah. So what's the like separation of powers thing here? Where like, why does the White House have to tell departments to like consider and things like why can't they just make them do them? Sure. I mean, I think you, you probably had some. It, you, you know, it's a good question. I think you probably had some pushback from DHS about you know uh, these things are always the product of negotiations, right, between the administration and their and their constituent pieces. And you know, I'm actually not sure why they didn't just direct it out, right? I mean, in some ways, they're actually um, providing a menu of options for Congress to direct DHS to do these things outright. Uh, but having you know not work directly on executive orders, but a lot of legislative language in the past. You often have agencies that are pleading for flexibility and not, you know, preferring to just be, you know, to be to be asked to consider something rather than to be directed to do something. So I suspect they the admin might have lost a few battles with DHS on this one. I mean, I admittedly, like, DHS has a lot on its hands right now, uh, you know, independent but like how of AI. much? But like how much work is it to just change the criteria for an O one? Um, or an H-1B. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like a huge lift to say, like, you know, if you're an AI engineer, if you have, like, you know, published, cited papers in this thing, then, like, you're in. Um, it, it seems weird to me. It's like they're asking uh, these agencies to find ways to modernize these pathways. So for, like, a range of these different visas. Uh, having gone through, like, one of these visa application processes myself, I'm from Australia originally, uh, there are definitely ways that that could be streamlined, but it seems like fairly obvious what those would be. So yeah, it's somewhat unclear on this. Yeah. And it's like some things that we're going to get into over this podcast are like hard slash like unknowable um, of like, you know, defining like AI progress and like figuring out AI safety or whatever, but like getting more STEM talent by rejiggering, you know, administrative regulation seems to be almost like the most straightforward thing. And that was a little disappointed that there wasn't more in there. I mean, like, for instance, like kind of the most like, like obviously stupid thing, um, this uh, inability to have domestic visa renewal. So having to leave the country every time you want to get your visa is like hugely annoying and disruptive. And if you have like a family and all of a sudden you have to like spend six weeks in Canada for no reason, um, you know, like, is it really that hard to like open an office and allow people to to, to get their visas renewed? Anyways, um, well, also just Jordan on that point. I mean, with all the with all the volatility in the tech sector, at least in the last eighteen months, you know, you've had a lot of people who have had um, interruptions in their employment, even though they're highly employable sector wide, right? And it's just yeah. it's just torturing people on an individual basis and uh, leading a lot of them not just to spend six weeks in Canada, but much longer to our detriment. I had a lovely two-week-long trip in Brazil last year because of this exact requirement. I can tell you it was actually quite nice. I mean, yeah, I don't but know not if nice if you have, yeah. like, children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. You need to be in but school. Jordan, I don't yeah. know if you know, you saw this, but, uh, but like, I'm pretty sure Canada earlier this year actually introduced, a, you know, a visa program directly targeting uh, H-1B, like, U.S. H-1B holders, uh, understanding that, you know, we're, we're just... 
sort of hemorrhaging talent through, you know, the dysfunction of our immigration system uh, against our own interests. And they're like, well, if you're not going to take them, we'd be happy to take them. So, yeah. All right. So we're giving we're giving uh, immigration, I guess, like a B minus. All right, Tim, uh, take us down to AI safety. There was a ton of it in this executive order. Dude, yeah, that's like right. Biden, Biden's like totally red pilled. I was like not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, I'd say this is where most of the specifics that I saw are where it really gets sort of into the meat of what um, like regulatory requirements on companies especially should look like. Um, and yeah, the safety security side of things is where this is heavily weighted. Um, so I guess like one thing is like commerce is playing a central role across all of this. So it's really commerce that's being asked to do a lot of the stuff in like the safety and security area. So evidence that commerce is increasingly emerging as like the default place where AI safety related regulation seems to be happening. Um, I guess on the safety stuff in general, it's like pretty focused on what they term as dual use foundation models. And we can go into the specific definition. They used to that, use that if you like. Yeah, let's. Let's stay on that for a second because it was very yeah. interesting. They they tried to like define like how big and scary a model is to be big and scary. I'll just read out um, the definition that they've got here. So this is an AI model that's trained on broad data, generally uses self-supervision, contains at least tens of billions of parameters, is applicable across a wide range of contexts, and it could uh, exhibit or be easily modified to exhibit high levels of performance at tasks that pose risks to um, national security. And it lists like a bunch of what that might look like. In terms of the actual technical definition of how they cash this out, it's in terms of the amount of computation that's actually trained to use the model. And on that they create this initial definition, but then they basically say, hey, commerce, we want you to go away and come up with something a bit better. But their uh, initial definition is any model that uses more than 10 to the power of 26 operations um, used to train it uh, or any uh, Put that model. in some context so, for us. <laughs> yeah. So that's <laughs> um, a whole lot of uh, trading compute. So for uh, context, uh, GPT-4, so the most powerful model probably on the market today released by OpenAI, probably used around two times 10 to the 25 operations. So this is about five times higher than that. So imagine like five times the amount of compute that OpenAI used to train GPT-4 is the sort of threshold that we're talking about. There's also this distinct separate threshold specifically for models that are primarily trained on biological sequence data. The, you know, models that could be used to um, develop uh, new um, synthetic viruses, for example. And there, there's a much lower compute threshold. So it's like a thousand times lower. So it's 10 to the power of 26. Um, and there's also corresponding limits around the like computing infrastructure that have before needing to report it that's sort of linked to those. Um, so for that, it's basically 10 to the power of 20 operations per second which you can basically think of as around like 20,000 of NVIDIA's latest H100 GPUs in a big cluster, which is a really big cluster. Any, any, anything on the safety stuff? Yeah, I think bio, What Tim's right, the bio is kind of the preeminent safety challenge. Um, they, had, they have a fair bit on cyber as well, um, but that seems to be what's on a lot of people's mind as the, as the first kind of area where these things could really pose a threat to public safety. Um, or even enable bioterrorism. Um, it's I give them a little kudos for also being proactive and mentioning that we can use AI to um, be kind of up our defensives proactively and not just look for ways to kind of shut it down. But yeah, there are a number of applications coming online. Um, there was just a paper that dropped, I think today, from an MIT professor looking at... Um, how open source Llama 2 can be used to potentially uh, help people create dangerous pathogens, in this case, the 1918 um, Spanish flu. Yeah, I think it, it it's interesting, uh, and, and it's right that they have a different threshold for um, bio design tools than they have for kind of general purpose models. Uh, a reason for that is that the kind of scariest proof of concept we've seen so far was this Megasyn case um, in 2022 where a pharmaceuticals company created or used kind of inadvertently had had a tool that they realized they could use to design uh, hitherto unknown chemical weapons. Um, but that model was actually very small uh, compared to what we see for general purpose models. Biology is a lot more complicated than 
chemical kind of design tools. Um, so we would need bigger models, but in theory, you could you could get some biological tools that are not that large in terms of parameters uh, that could still do some nasty stuff. <laughs> we talked a little bit about like the thresholds for what sort of like models and computing infrastructure they're worried about, but it's probably worth talking about. Okay, like what are companies actually being required to do? Do you want to go into that? Yeah. No, let's let's stay on the. I want to stay on the bio stuff for a yeah. second. This, this whole bio thing is just going to be an enormously difficult nut to crack. As you um, you said, like the, the the threshold for compute being dangerous is a lot smaller. There are way too many um, GPUs out in the wild for even if you had like really great um, sort of near your customer like cloud control, like everyone is playing by the rules and registering their AI models with the commerce department or whatever. Like that's still not necessarily going to stop this stuff. And I am. Um, you know, kind of personally banking only on the like, you know, the the good AI is going to outrun the bad AI when it comes to um, when it comes to this sort of thing. But that's like a, that's like a framework which makes a little more sense in the cyber context than it does in the in the bio one. Because like, what is it just going to like pump out like bigger and badder vaccines every time you know someone makes a bio weapon? I mean, it's, it's really uh, it's really a hard uh, kind of a. a, a difficult thing to sort of imagine a positive future for this. It's worth keeping in mind the bio stuff. There's a few different measures addressing this. So one is this like compute threshold for reporting and stuff. Um, the second one is they're commissioning a report on bio risks. Um, but the third, which is the most interesting here, is it's like measures to introduce screening for providers who are actually producing like synthetic nucleic acids. Um, so this yeah. is like synthetic DNA you can use to create viruses. So it's creating these like measures such that the companies who are actually providing these inputs that might be crucial for carrying out a buyer attack actually have some sort of like screening and regulation about like what they're providing to customers and what they can do with it. But this is not, this doesn't matter unless it's like the whole planet that's on board. And like, maybe it will be. And there's this whole section at the end being like state department, like make sure the whole world, like, you know, has good AI standards or whatever. But, um, uh, it's, it's not necessarily something like with the, with the, with the foundational models, like just because America controls the commanding heights of compute, um, there's a lot to be done. But if it turns out that you don't need, um, you know, 5x uh, GPT-4 to, um, uh, to, to to make progress here, then we're, we may be in for a really um, rocky road. Well, I, I, I should say, too, there are, there are ways. In, I mean, I think it's all pretty scary. It's also interesting that the synthetic bio screening, that's, um, that has snuck into this AI order, but that's something that by Bi- synthetic biologists have been calling for for a while independent of ai advancements um so that's something that's been kind of long overdue like you say um you kind of want global coverage for it to really be effective um but it, it's also worth saying that there are two separable issues here one is you know we can help instruct bad actors in how to create conventional bioweapons more easily um, and that usually does require foundational models that require a whole lot of compute. Um, but at the moment, uh, it's still pretty spec. I mean, there's nothing yet that these models can really do that that uh, you couldn't do without the internet. They just make it faster. Um, and even then, they introduce mistakes and so on. Uh the other issue is biological design tools that will eventually be able to kind of design pathogens um, with with greater precision um, and potentially with the ability to kind of circumvent a lot of the just screening like tar- tools that are already there. Just like there. target CNA, CNAS employees, basically. <laughs> That's what you're It'd be easier about. if we all had a common genetic makeup. Uh, <laughs> We've been there but, for longer than one month. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that latter category, though, uh, is it's a little bit further down the line. Um, and there are a lot of um, technical hurdles to overcome before we get there. Um, and it may be the case that as we approach those sorts of capabilities, we, we discover there are other bottlenecks that we can work with. Um, so if you if you think about in principle what's possible, I think it's really scary um, when you think more um, in terms of like quite specific outcomes uh there are things we can work with um but i think screening in any case is overdue and um 
will be a step in the right direction. It's just a matter of um, how effective we can be at making it kind of a holistic, uh, global kind of regime. So we've alluded to this earlier, and this has been a, a sort of longstanding theme on uh, China talk, this idea that, you know, you have all these export controls uh, on China, uh, restricting firms from importing AI chips, but like there's still sort of, it's still a free-for-all when if you want to, you know, use Google Cloud or AWS or what have you to train a model. So um, what's new in this executive order that tries to get at that question? Um, yeah, it's, I guess, yeah, there's this like broad thing as you touched on, uh, Jordan, that's like, okay, we put in place these export controls to stop these powerful AI chips from going overseas, especially to China. But those exact same chips are still available on US cloud services for anyone to use for free. So many policymakers have been going like, what the hell, why are we doing this? Um, one solution to this is to sort of keep this like pretty open access approach, but just to have guardrails around their usage, which is, seems to be where this executive order is really focused on. Um, important to keep in mind, it's focused squarely on non-US persons who are accessing um, US cloud services. So it's focused on um, basically one, getting US cloud service providers to report when any foreign user of their cloud services is using above a, like a threshold amount of training compute. Um, and getting foreign resellers of US cloud services. So basically like someone who's like on selling compute from someone like AWS, but it's a foreign company um, to actually verify the location, the identity of their customers and report on that. Uh, so basically a whole bunch of things that looks like customer due diligence, know your customer requirements. Um, that's like really focused on foreign users of US cloud compute, figuring out who they are and like, are they bad guys? Um, there's been a couple of executive orders that have focused on this area before. So this is like another re-emphasis that this is like seen as a problem. And just to build on what, what Tim was saying, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's clearly the, the federal government at a minimum, as it usually does, trying to just collect data, get a sense of the landscape as a way to begin building the muscle memory within government and the private sector to potentially lay the groundwork for more you know, outright or explicit restrictions on cloud down the road, which they withheld in the last update of the export controls. I mean, we'll see. But um, often this is what happens with government. You know, you start with a small step and then, um, you know, it's sort of the teaser trailer for the for the actual policy update down the road. Yeah, so let's talk about that kind of like teaser trailer to actual policy um, pipeline. Um, you know, how does all of this stuff end up interacting with, you know, your... Senate staffer. I think anybody uh, in the think tank or uh, trying to schedule a podcast or trying to get their phone call answered on the Hill, you know, from the Hill to the entire executive branch is going to struggle for the next 540 days is everybody's just going to be writing reports and updating standards and considering whether to implement new programs. Uh, but look, I mean, I think when these reports do come out, uh, the Hill, you know, Hill staffers often read them. Uh, they're often briefed. Uh, they're, they're, you know, this is an opportunity for organizations like CNS and others to bring the government and the Hill staff together as they're developing these reports to think through their contents. Um, but the truth is, it's a massive amount to track. And I think it's going to be, you know, a lot for the Hill to swallow in terms of keeping all of these pieces um, in their head. But I think, because, you know, if there's a flip side to that, the breadth of work um, means that virtually every committee will have an interest in this, whether it's, you know, labor, uh, health care, intelligence, education. I mean, all of them have a piece of this because virtually the entire federal government has been implicated in this. We, we sort of talked in the beginning about like the different ways you can approach this thing. Like this executive order could have had a lot, um, you know, made a lot more sort of like assertions and demands and direction directings, um, even though the, the, you know, evidentiary basis for some of those decisions might not have been as kind of like built out as, as, as one would hope. If as a sort of congressperson, you know, as a congressperson or a congressional staffer, if you see like, oh, in the sort of like executive branch, we're going to have a report in 270 days. Does that mean you stop working on it? And it's like, okay, this is someone else's problem and they'll, they'll tell me what to do. Is it, is it by sort of party, how you respond to the different executive branch stuff? Even if this, it's kind of like this AI stuff, which is a little more technical and a less politicized, like how does the fact that there will be lots of reports coming down the pipeline change this sort of like impetus for action on the Hill on these topics? Sure. I mean, I think it, 
I think that it depends on the agency. There's probably some agencies whose reports have weight and credibility uh, and others who the Hill will be less interested in reviewing. Uh, and I think, and look, I think separation of powers means something in the sense that the Hill also does its own homework and wants to have an independent perspective on these issues. And they're not necessarily just going to defer to the Department of Defense or the Department of Commerce. Uh, they certainly have it in the past just because they put something together in a report. You know, they can be great products, but oftentimes what happens with, you know, agency reports, they can also be just written by committee and not actually push the frontier of thinking and uh, inform people much more than what they already know, especially. So I think, I think unfortunately, the, the uninteresting answer is that it depends. You know, I so, think like, so if you look Vivek, at the IC, what, for example, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, Vivek, like what's like the power rankings of like good versus bad reports from the different Oh boy, I'm going to get in trouble. But I think, I mean, I look generally, I think people respect reports that, uh, that the IC puts out. Um, to the extent you can read them. Uh, I think, look, I mean, I, I don't want to pick on anybody, but I can't imagine that people are going to be that... Um, don't have particularly high expectations for like agencies like the Department of Labor or uh, HHS that don't really have a history of working on AI and are going to be pulling on their existing uh, team, which is not replete with, you know, technical experts or AI ethics and uh, policy folks, um, you know, to meet these timelines. So I, whereas in DOD, for example, where you've got the Jake and a lot of other work on AI, they've been thinking about this for a little bit longer. Um, there might be more deference to it. Yeah. Here's here's maybe a fun thing to go around the horn with. Say you guys wanted to like get real jobs for the next year um, and uh, work on one of these reports uh, sitting somewhere in the executive branch. Like where where which one do you think would you would personally be most excited to uh, try to move the ball forward on? I mean, I think there's a there's a national security memorandum that has been uh, directed through this EO. Uh, I mean, it's quite it's pretty far encompassing, but it feels like. Uh, we're we're working on our own version of that in in different reports. Uh, you know, not not a comprehensive national security, yeah, but we're certainly thinking about a, a lot of chapters what what that could be. But that seems to me at least like a really interesting one. Yeah. So that one, yeah, no 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 pressure. Develop a coordinated executive branch approach to managing AI security risks. Why not? Yeah. No big deal, right? Yeah. Two hundred two hundred seventy days. Yeah, and keep in mind, this is both uh, about DOD and other agencies adopting AI, as well as risk management, as well as actions that address potential use of AI by adversaries. So going on both the sort of like offense-defense side of this. Uh, 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 Tim and Bill, what are your two? My real answer might be something in commerce, because that seems like where a lot of the, the real action is going to happen on this. Um, but my if I, if I had a kind of off-the-beaten-path answer... Um, one area that I think could be interesting if we actually really focused on it, um, is in the, the last section on kind of working on AI for development. Seems like there are a lot of applications that might fly under the radar, but that's one area of, uh, potential serious competition with China that I think could use some more. Um, uh, so I'd be interested to work on that. Well, and just to connect what Bill said to what Tim was talking about earlier, I mean, when we think about our um, particular unique American advantages with cloud, right? And uh, maybe this is an interesting vehicle for us to consider as we explore ways to, you know, have a sort of what the EO calls rights affirming and safe and responsible deployment and development of AI abroad. Uh, you know, what that looks like, I think, I don't know. And I think none of us really know, but uh, uh, to the extent that we can provide, you know, applications of, of safe AI for things like health and agriculture and uh, energy efficiency to countries that need them through the cloud uh, for, com you know, countries that aren't able to have that sort of infrastructure themselves, I think could be really promising. Cool. So I think like an underrated one here is actually what the hell to do about open sourcing. So this is just basically a question that they've raised without any clear answer. Um, so I think this is commerce has been tasked with this. It's like soliciting inputs on risk from open source benefits, mechanisms to address it, and then like submitting a report to the president. Um, this is like a huge topic, which I think is just like core to the effectiveness of all the other measures that they're putting in place around like having to report training runs and computing infrastructure and everything. 
like if you can just go ahead and open source one of these models anyway, all of these things seem kind of redundant. So I think that's like a really interesting area to focus in on. Um, and then the other one, yeah, is this like cloud question, how we're going to go about govern this insofar as compute is like the means of production for AI globally. How is the US going to go about shaping what that looks like? Um, so cloud and sort of like thresholds that you use within cloud and like how you go about managing it and who you deem is or isn't allowed to access US cloud, I think will just be this hugely consequential thing um, that like is very hard to get right strategically. So I think all the sort of investigation that commerce is doing on that would be super interesting to get involved in. Yeah, so mine is, there's all this stuff in here, which is sort of like impossible and unknowable. And I'm not sure in 270 days, like anyone's going to be able to come up with like a great, um, you know, framework for what to do about open source. Cause like the next 270 days are going to be way different than the past 270 days um, uh, in terms of, you know, how capable these things are and what have you. But um, one thing I think you can be like moderately certain on is just the sort of day-to-day -day work of like doing government has the potential to be radically improved from a just like day-to-day -day like line officer productivity sense. Um, and uh, sort of each agency is going to, within 60 days, have to have a uh, chief artificial intelligence officer who's going to have to do this sort of dual piece of like, yeah, like be stressed out about the risks, but also think about being like, you know, your lead evangelist for getting people, um, you know, the, the tools and access and, and regulatory flexibility to start to use this just like everyone else in the whole country is and their, and their daily work. So um, that I think would be the sort of like not super sexy, but like potentially really impactful way um, to just improve how all of government works. And yeah, you may not be like saving the world from a global like AI pandemic, but like, you know, Someone's got to, you know, process the visas. When I was on Senator Bennett's team, we actually proposed an idea not to continue to shill for, for him, but uh, to have basically what we called emerging technology leads that were basically responsible tech officers. It wasn't just AI, but AI was principally on our mind. And one of the, one of the trade-offs is, you know, first of all, you, it's easy to appoint people like that in agencies, but if they, they're not empowered and they don't, you know, they're not reporting to the right people. It's like it can be a nominal exercise. So I think the key here is where do they exist in the bureaucracy? What kind of authority do they have? Who are they reporting to? And also, if you concentrate that responsibility, there's some virtues to it organizationally, but you can also silo it, right? So like you just have the one guy thinking about AI as opposed to the whole organization thinking about it as much as, because like clearly what they're trying to do with this EO and roles like this is they're trying to socialize AI in the federal government and say, we need to be thinking about all of our work in the age of AI in a different way. Um, and this isn't just something that commerce needs to worry about or the national security community needs to worry about. Um, but the implementation will matter here. Yeah. There are all these cute, like, let's meet every month for lunch to like, you know, talk about how it's going in your respective agencies. You um, mean the AI council? Yeah, exactly. So Tim, let's come back to something we talked about in the very beginning. Like if you're training GPT-5, um, the U.S. government is now like politely requesting that you share with them, um, you know, red teaming, what you're doing with the weights and like how you're overall uh, setting up your sort of cybersecurity structure. Um, but like, does that matter at all yeah so i guess like the question that um naturally comes to mind is okay like what if this one of this red teaming or like evaluation evaluation exercises triggers true like some model uh some company has developed a model that allows them to carry out some like large-scale novel bio attack um what do we then want to happen as far as i can tell the stuff in this executive order doesn't actually give government the power to block a company from releasing that model or even open sourcing it it's more reporting about how they went about training it and sort of like the red teaming or risk management process that they took. The, the authority allowing this is a Defense Production Act, which, um, quoting, allows the president to shape national defense preparedness programs to take appropriate steps to maintain and enhance the domestic industrial base. So this is typically really about giving the government sort of like the goods and making it a critical buyer to sort of like get defense appropriate items available to the government. Um, I understand it was used during COVID to get things like respirators and masks to the right place, but it's interesting that it's being used here for regulatory purposes. And it's a little bit unclear to me whether you could actually use it to block companies from doing specific things, um, unless it's sort of, uh, you need to work with the government instead of uh, working with these other customers. Um, but yeah, interested debate if you've um, looked into the powers that the DPA actually gives the government and whether they could use this to take more of a uh, restrictive type action here. Yeah, well, 
I think, Tim, uh, my understanding of the DPA, and I don't hold myself out as any expert on it, but they can compel companies to produce for national security purposes. Like in, if people remember during the pandemic, it's like, as you mentioned, you know, respirators, masks, things like that. But in terms of uh, blocking production, uh, that's unclear to me. That doesn't mean that they can't, but I haven't, I haven't, I'm not aware of a case of the DPA being used in that way. And I was kind of honestly a little surprised to see it here. Not that it's not appropriate, but it was a very novel um, invocation. What you can imagine doing is making reporting requirements so generous that you, in fact, block the release of the model because of all the hoops that a company has to jump through. But they're just reporting requirements. It's like, okay, I'll show you my red team, but like, what if my red team activity is trash or what if you know my i'm my, i don't have great cybersecurity. it's like there's not an enforcement piece here um and this has kind of been the strategy all along and it's probably like for want of a better option right is like all right we're going to get all these ai companies to like show up to the white house and we're going to tell them to play nice and um you know sign to sign up to all these principles and like that's great until there's someone who has enough money and compute um who doesn't feel like, you know, the the sort of norms which are slowly but surely starting to be established should apply to them. And then, you know, exactly what you said, Tim, there's this there's this sort of like the stick hasn't quite been made explicit um, in a way that, you know, maybe after 270 days, we'll have a, a sort of a sharper version of. To be fair on like what we're trying to do here, there is substantial disagreement, I think, uh, among experts in AI, AI, even about the specific risks that will posed by AI in the future. So these requirements are sort of setting up as sort of monitoring and evaluation requirement such that we actually get that empirical data that's required to sort of make additional moves on these risks. Of course, this is all they're really allowed to do, um, like what you can do under an executive order. But I still see solving, like trying to solve that measurement problem is like a fairly great thing here. Yeah, I mean, there might be there might be some virtue in taking our time and collecting and getting a sense of the, the state of play and whose, you know, red teams are actually doing the work and whose are just phoning it in. All right. If within 270 days I get turned into a paperclip, I'm going to blame uh, the caution of the White House for that, um, uh, for, the, for the slow pace of the, of, the, of the stick being rolled out. That didn't land like I hoped. <laughs> right, it's okay. It was great. <laughs> just <laughs> cutting this laughter. I'll hold you to that. Uh, final, uh, fi- final thoughts. So I'm... Uh, Recording this the afternoon of October 31st, uh, tomorrow we have uh, uh, the the AI Safety Summit. It's like kind of an incredible thing that it's even happening um, in the UK. Uh, uh, Bill, what's a, what's what's going on here? It's a big week for artificial intelligence. Yeah, it's kind of high season for AI governance in general because this is also just a couple weeks after AI, uh, after China released its vision for international AI governance as well. And this, I mean, the the end of this executive order um, talks about kind of, inter, you know, this is setting the stage for what America is going to do and presumably what America is going to try to internationalize. Um, the AI Safety Summit seems like it's the beginnings of really the flagship attempt by um, like-minded countries to establish guardrails for AI. The London Summit it has a much more narrow set of concerns, um, mostly to do with really catastrophic risks. Um, They also have a a major focus on bio. Uh, But I think it'll be interesting, one, to see the extent to which China is interested in the sort of suggestions, concerns, controls that the US and the UK are interested in, um, and also potentially to see where there might be divergence there. And it it seems like initially, at least, China's trying to position itself as leader of the global South, um, kind of has consistently criticized the U.S. for forming um, groups that want to contain the technology. It's almost, it it mirrors the regulatory capture discussions we've had in the Senate. and China's kind of accused the U.S. of doing that and, and is trying to contrast itself as a power that will allow um, developing countries to kind of seize the moment in AI. Um, so I think all these at the same time, the U.K. Safety Summit does have a pretty diverse attendee list. Um, it integrates a lot of countries that um, are, are 
maybe not particularly leaders technically in AI, um, but I'll be curious to see what the receptiveness is to these sorts of measures from China, from those countries, um, and where there might be friction. So um, uh, uh, when I was bitterly tweeting that, uh, you know, we had a lot of civil society organizations, but China Talk didn't get an invite. Um, uh, within 30 seconds, Matthew Clifford, who is the prime minister's representative on AI safety, um, uh, said, like, we'll get you next time, Jordan. So, um, uh, you know, if this if this one doesn't like, uh, you know, solve AI safety, it was just because uh, no one paid for my flight to London. Um Assuming you're not a paperclip by this time next year, Jordan. Yeah, that's right? true. You know, that's beyond 270 days. Like we're, uh, well, 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 by then we'll be in the promised land. Or reading federal reports. Yeah. The airfare to London for a paperclip is much lower. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Uh, Jordan, do you have predictions yeah. about how China is going to approach this AI safety summit? I don't know. I'm like, I'm like very much of two minds. Um, because I think they clearly see something in this and it's like, I, I'm sort of surprised by it. Like the, the whole, I just, I'm sort of surprised in general, just like the idea that the whole world is like excited about global AI governance. I mean, maybe it's just like something that's like, no one wants to talk about Ukraine because it's like depressing and intractable. And like, here's like a new thing where like, we haven't all decided where we hate each other about yet. Um, but it, it, it is like, like that was like that that document could have been a lot less constructive um the sort of uh you know here's what's like like uh Sahau, who's now your friend um uh you know wrote that wrote that piece for me which i think is like broadly correct that it's like they seem kind of open to having discussions about it but just having been conditioned on every other thing that china over the past five years has tried to do internationally to like that is like not like doesn't turn out being like useful to anyone it seems it would seem weird that like ai would be the one thing that would break the mold there um but maybe is it worth touching on um what the u.s seems to see as its goals for global leadership as stated in this executive order in the rollout of this uh executive order the white house was saying something along the lines of like this is the most comprehensive action by any government anywhere around the world on artificial intelligence, um, which is like a weird thing to be bragging about. I don't know, but sure, why not? Um, wh what do you think is like the, you know, when they're saying they're like leading the world in like addressing AI, what do you think that like actually means? And what are what is the Biden administration hoping it hoping it ends up like achieving? Yeah, so I think you could take away some um, interesting clues from what they explicitly state in the executive order on this. So they have some, um, I think, some language around like wanting to expand engagements with allies on bilateral, multilateral stuff. So, you know, attending this AI safety summit, getting involved in that. Um, they also talk about wanting to take the uh, voluntary commitments that like large US labs have signed and expand those internationally. So it seems like the White House definitely see sees those existing set of principles that are really focused on this AI safety and security stuff as like the vehicle, like this is the thing that they want to push um, sort of globally in terms of specific AI governance. The other thing is standards. So NIST in the US has this AI risk management framework. So like this set of technical standards for what like risk management in AI should look like. Um, they talk in the executive that, Tim? <laughs> no. They just came it's up like, with that version like, 1.0. Uh, honestly, yeah. like no offense to NIST, there's like it's it's all very hortatory. And that's kind of like the whole thing with this AI principles thing. It's like, you should be a good actor. Like, you should be responsible. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll get the more technical version of like how you can, you know, build that into your model so it doesn't, you know, create a bioweapon in practice. But, um, you know, this like, like, you know, just the whole like idea of like crossing your fingers that everyone's going to do the right thing here. Um, I mean, I hope it works out. Well, but Jordan, on that on, on that point, quickly, like with the technology that's moving this fast, like in some ways you need a principle-based regulatory approach because if you have fixed standards and specifications, they're just going to get, you know, outpaced within far few, less time than 270 days probably. And th this is how lots of this stuff works, right? Like standards by themselves are particularly useful, but if well-defined enough, they provide this sort of like soft law basis that global regulations can then point at. I guess is the goal to start off with something like NIST risk management framework for AI, which I agree is fairly high level, seems fairly high level at the moment, but there's a version they're developing specifically for generative 
um, and then take that to global fora like ISO to actually turn these into like technical standards that the rest of the world can agree on. And then that forms the basis of the thing that um, regulations across the world can then point at when they want to define some of these concepts. Uh, Bill, did you want to get in on that? Or? I think one final thing that maybe hasn't been mentioned is that there is, I, I agree with Tim that, that it seems like these um, voluntary commitments are what they've explicitly said they want to internationalize. Um, but at least their rhetoric has been trying to internationalize the whole package and what they're trying to pioneer is kind of a, a pro-democracy approach to AI, which does contrast with uh, a lot of talk about China's export of techno-authoritarianism uh, and the kind of Xinjiang model being uh, provided uh, or, or, or you know, shades of it provided to uh, autocrats or wannabe autocrats. Um, so I think that I, I kind of doubt, I mean, the, the area where China and the U.S.'s stated objectives have the most overlap is on these kind of frontier model um, issues. Um, I suspect to the degree that there is um, this weird uh, race to being the one to win the regulatory discussion internationally, I suspect it's going to be, you know, to what degree can we get either democracy friendly or autocracy friendly provisions established, if any. Yeah, it, it that just seems like like the autocracy democracy stuff. It just seems like like I don't want to say it's a side a sideshow, but there's so much more going on in how AI is going to affect you know everything about global governance and economy and national security than just like you know whether uh you know it'll say something in a in an ISO standard about if something can be used to you know help police find people or something. Um, there, there is a sort of very interesting difference, I think, um, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier with Tim, where, you know, you the, the American firms now, they just have to notify that they're making these big models. But um, in China, you have to, like, get your model registered and, like, go through this whole process before you can deploy it. And that is, I think, like, a pretty fundamental difference, at least for now, um, in how the, the the U.S. and Chinese regulatory systems are, are going about um, – trying to get their hands around and and sort of channel the impacts of these um, uh, uh, increasingly powerful models and whether or not, you know, whether China is going to stick to it um, because if uh, two years from now, it seems like they're going too slow and they're like, you know, losing the AI race because they can't deploy this stuff fast enough. Or if the U.S., you know, gets scared and there are some sort of big safety scares and all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of American regulatory energy wants to wants to sort of slow things down and be a little more considered um when new models get deployed will be a really interesting dynamic um uh, uh to follow in the coming 270 days jordan i might i'm gonna push back a little bit on something you said earlier about uh, the democracy versus authoritarianism thing in some ways feeling like a like a sideshow i mean certainly ai is so broadly applicable that you know when you're thinking about the application of ai and like energy efficiency or agriculture, like what does this have to do with democracy and AI, you know, um, or like attributable, you know, swarms of drones. But I think, but I, I don't think it's a sideshow in the sense that like it does matter for the United States and the EU and others to uh, demonstrate that there is a path for developing and deploying this stuff in a way that emphasizes, you know, privacy enhancing or privacy preserving technologies in a way that, you know, puts problems like algorithmic discrimination at the forefront, not as afterthoughts and like, oh, we just got to clean this up after we deployed it. Now, it, it may not be necessarily the best for the rapid deployment of AI, but it is probably best for the responsible deployment of AI, which may be sustainable over the long run. Because if this thing gets out of hand and short circuits and public trust is lost, and frankly, in the US, it's already pretty low. Bill's written about this, you know, in China, it's much higher. So I do think there was I'm leaning into the, the idea that we're going to use AI in a way that's consistent with our values and that's going to ideally reinforce our values is not only the right thing to do from a moral perspective and a global leadership perspective, but even just a practical perspective of bringing the public along with us. That sounds, that sounds right. <laughs> I, I, I concede. Um, I will let the record reflect that Jordan conceded. Yeah. Any, any final comments? Anyone else? Sorry, I don't mean to filibuster here. I know I'm coming from the Senate, Jordan, but I think 
I, there was a little negativity about the EO, maybe and like, oh, it's just a bunch of reports and consider this and maybe do that. But look, I mean, I, I think our frustration shouldn't be at the admin administration. It should be at Congress. Like they're trying to develop an AI policy that's fairly comprehensive in the context of a Congress that probably isn't going to pass anything on AI in the short term, you know, and by that, I mean the next 18 months. Uh, and they don't want to show up looking like they haven't done their homework to the UK summit while the rest of the world has, is, you know, for better or worse, progressing on AI governance policies. Yeah, I think that's fair. And like, you know, clearly there was an enormous amount of work and late nights and thought that was put into all of this. And the administration has just signed themselves up for another uh, sort of year of, uh, of sort of running around trying to solve these, you know, many like probably intractable problems. So hats off for them for at least putting this stuff on the agenda of, for the agencies in a real way. And, you know, hopefully in the, in the coming, in the, in the coming months, we'll start to see more of the fruits of um, uh, uh, the, the sort of broader policy agenda that this, uh, that this document ended up uh, laying out. So Vivek, um, you know, what do you think is for a song to take us out? What do you think is like the, is going to be like your, your, your theme song for like how you're going to run the, run the, run the shop at a CNES. Born to run responsibly. Ooh, That's so boy. bad. Ooh. That's so bad. I'm sorry. I, I have to apologize to Bruce, the, to the boss for that. You put me on the spot. I have to think of a better song. You're talking about an actual song, Jordan, for the team. Oh no, you know? no. Yes. A literal song that will be our outro music. I don't know, team. Any thoughts? I was going to suggest whip it to reflect your management style. <laughs> in the spirit of in the spirit of empowering other voices, I'll I'll go with Tim's answer, even though it may not reflect well on me. <laughs> Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Again, team team technology at CNAS.